Well, good morning and happy Labor Day. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, come on, maybe an extra day off for hopefully for most of you. That's right. It's good stuff. A day where I guess based on what I've seen, we, we celebrate the collective achievements and the hard work of the American people by giving them a day off. Okay. So you can join me. I invite you to join me. My plans for tomorrow are to do absolutely nothing. Okay. So join it and join me in doing that. Relax. We'll have a good time, but hopefully all of you, most of you get uh, get an extra day off this weekend. So happy Labor Day uh, to you. It is a special weekend for my wife, Brooks and I. We actually celebrate something different uh, this weekend. Uh, see, 28 years ago today, I was on my honeymoon. Okay. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. She was there too, by the way. Um, but yeah, we actually yesterday, the 31st is our anniversary, so today, uh, we, Labor Day weekend is something completely uh, different for us, so we celebrate our anniversary, and thank you for that. I appreciate that. But I will say, over 28 years, somewhere along the way, I believe I've learned the secret to a happy marriage, okay? And I will share that with you. So guys, listen up. It may be something you're already familiar with, but it could also be the most important thing you hear today, Okay? So here's the deal. The secret to a happy marriage, you can be one of two things. Very simple. You can be right or you can be happy. Okay? <laughs> Please write that down. It's very important. It is the secret to a happy marriage. You can't be both. And if you're like me, I spent a lot of time trying to be right. Okay? Uh, you can be right or you can be happy. But that's the story of our world today, right? It's so hard. It's such a hard lesson, not just us guys, but all of us. In our world today, we all just want to be right. You know, it seems like it's unfortunate, but there's more divisiveness in our world today. And there's, you're either right or you're wrong. There's, there's black, there's white, there's no gray, there's no such thing as opinion. Um, and it's just a difficult time because we all just, if we're being honest with ourselves, we have this, this sort of desire to be, to be right. So my goal for today is to talk about the difference between being right and being right chess. Okay? Yeah, I get a little play on words there. You like that? I like that. Being right and being righteous. And, and it, righteousness is one of those things that it can be a little subtle, it can be a little complex. So we'll talk about that. But if you were here last week, uh, you heard Brother Tommy give an amazing sermon on, and he was talking about godly love was his context. And one of the things that he said that really resonated with me that I thought was really profound is it's one of those things where first you have to practice, and then you practice it long enough, you become it. So in his context, he was talking about practicing God's love, sharing God's love with the world in a godly manner. And he's saying if you practice it long enough, sooner or later you become the embodiment of God's love, right? Righteousness is the same exact thing. If we practice it and we focus on it and we're very intentional and very diligent about trying to live a life of righteousness, we have to practice it first until ultimately at some point in time, we become the very embodiment of what God created us to be in terms of our righteousness. And so I was reading, we're doing the year of the Bible. I hope you're staying with us. I hope you're doing that. If not, you're missing out on a blessing. It's not too late to start. We're going to be doing this through the end of the year. But we were reading this week in the book of Job. And I thought, what better place to start when it comes to talking about what righteousness really is? And I tell you, this year of the Bible reading plan has been really put together well because for me, it's really done a great job of, of connecting those Old Testament prophecies 
to the New Testament fulfillment of those prophecies. And seeing that connection, I'm telling you, it's helped me see the Bible in, in these, these old words sometimes in a, in a new light. And I really encourage you. That's a great blessing. Take part in it. It's not, it's not too late. Uh, we're going to be doing it through the end of the year. So let's talk about Job and righteousness. And, and it kicks right off in the book of Job. We read through the, the book this week. We're not quite finished with it, but we're getting close. But it kicks right off in verse 1. Job 1, talking about how Job is a man of perfect righteousness. And it says, in the land of Uz, I love that name, land of Uz, not Oz, it's Uz. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. So if you look at that feared God and shunned evil, blameless and upright, if you look at that in some of the other translations and some of the definitions of that, it means he's perfect in righteousness. Now, I'm not saying he's perfect. Please understand there's a difference. I'm saying Job, just like all of us, he faced sin. He, he likely succumbed to sin. Uh, but what he believed in his righteousness was to, to make the sacrifices, to live according to the law, to earnestly repent of his sins and, and, and try to live in a way that God called him to live. He not only did it for himself, but if you read in the book, he also did it for his family. He did it for his children. And in the event that maybe they haven't made the right sacrifices or they sinned in some ways, he wanted a sacrifice for them too. A little side note, how's that for a really good spiritual leader of a household? It's pretty strong. We could talk about that sometime too. But Job was perfect in righteousness, okay? So if that's the case, what happened? Well, in the Bible, God allowed Satan to inflict Job with these terrible tests, these terrible trials basically took everything away from him, took away all of his, most of his possessions, his livestock, his oxen, his camel, his, his sheep, uh, took away all of his servants, killed all of his servants and, and took them away, killed his children, his, his sons and his daughters, and then later inflicted him with these terrible sores, these painful sores. And God allowed Satan to do that. Now, if you're Job, and you're in a man of perfect righteousness, and you're suddenly facing all these trials and these difficult circumstances, how do you respond? How would I respond? I know how I'd respond. But how would you respond if you're trying to do everything God's calling you to do, but suddenly you're being tested and you're enduring these terrible things from Satan? So when you think about how you might respond, like I said, I know how I'd respond. It kind of introduces a new word that I want to talk about. And it's kind of a variation of the word right. We say everybody wants to be right. Well, if we put that into the context of a different phrase, it's the word self-righteous. Okay, so we talk about now self-righteousness. So we always want to be right all the time. It's a little bit of pride. It's a little bit of self-righteousness. So if I was in Job's situation, I might become a little bit self-righteous. I might think, man, I, I deserve better than this. What's happening here? I've lived the life you called me to live. I've done the things that you wanted me to do. Why am I having to suffer all that? And that's a little bit of self-righteous. And, and what we see in Job is that actually this self-righteousness presented itself in many, many different ways. We'll just cover a couple of them. Let's look at some advice from his wife. When he's in the middle of all these, these struggles and these, these problems, his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. That's his wife giving him that advice, okay? Now, I know what she's saying. She's saying, look, why are you going through all this? If you'll just curse God and die, give up your integrity in front of God, maybe this suffering will be released and you won't have to endure it. And oh, by the way, it may make my life a little bit easier too. So who's being self-righteous in that moment? 
So Job, a man of perfect righteousness, is starting to get this advice from people he knows and he loves. And his wife is saying, curse God and die. Then we go to chapter 4, and we look at another friend of his, a very close friend of his named Eliphaz, comes in and starts talking to him and is trying to help him understand, look, you don't deserve this. Why are you going through all this? You've lived life, right? Shouldn't there be, maybe there's some unconfessed sin in your life. And so let's see what Eliphaz has to say in Job 4, starting in verse 3. Think how you've instructed many. How you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? So Eliphaz is talking to Job and he's saying, look, you've lived life like you're supposed to. Piety, if you're not familiar with that word, it just means religious, religion. You know, your good actions, your good activities, your religious beliefs. Doesn't matter about faith, but the fact that you practice these, these religious beliefs, that religion should make life easier for you. And so he was trying to say, look, if you probably have some unconfessed sin in your life. And if you would just confess that sin, God might end your suffering. So he was actually advocating that Job become a little bit self-righteous and say, look, okay, I don't know whether I've sinned or not, but I'm going to go ahead and confess it. He was trying to get Job to be a little bit self-righteous himself. But Job knew, he knew there are other reasons why we often endure trials and tribulations. His righteousness told him, this is God trying to help him grow. This is God trying to help him understand. Okay. And so Job refused to do that. And so right, uh, self-righteousness can kind of be, be subtle sometimes. We have to be careful about that pride sneaking in. Here's another thing about self-righteousness. People that are self-righteous don't like to be told they're self-righteous, right? <laughs> you ever tried to tell somebody, hey, you're being a little bit self-righteous? How did they respond? I've lived this personally. I have a very good example I'll share with you real quick. Uh, since we're celebrating 28 years of marriage, I'll pick on my wife a little bit. About 15 to 20 years ago, I went to this wonderful spiritual retreat. Man, it was awesome. I came home. I was on cloud nine. I was ready to change the world. I walked through that door and I said, honey, you won't believe it. Life is different. We're going to change. Here's the ministries we're going to do. Here's how we're going to raise our children. Uh, here's what you and I are going to do. And here's how we're going to give generously and start serving in the community. And, I, and she turned around. I remember it clear as day. And she said, look, we will not be having any of this holier-than-thou, self-righteous stuff in this household. <laughs> now, this was a few years back, and I distinctly remember even like a Z-snap and a little kick in the neck and you know, a little hit. She was serious, I'm telling you. She was all over it. She's like, we're not going to have it. I didn't appreciate being called self-righteous. I thought I was coming in with the right attitude. Now, fortunately for me, she went to the same retreat a few years later and, and came back and we, and 28 years later, here we are. So, uh, so, but people don't like being told they're self-righteous, right? So it's a little subtle. We have to be careful of pride. People don't like being told they're self-righteous. Here's another thing about self-righteousness. Those people that are self-righteous don't even really know they're being self-righteous. Okay. Let me give you an example. Have you ever watched, uh, these music shows like American Idol or America's Got Talent or some of the stuff like that? And they show the auditions for these shows and the bad auditions where the people come in and they start screeching out the music. And in their mind, they sound like Adele, right? They, they think they sound wonderful. They don't even realize, or like when Tommy tries to sing up here on stage, <laughs> they don't even realize how bad they sound. They're completely oblivious to it, right? It's the same way with self-righteousness, okay? The people that actually have it, 
don't even know that they have it. So for the purposes of our discussion this morning, let's just make it real simple, okay? For the purposes of our discussion, we all know that self-righteous person. Now look at me. Everybody just look straight ahead. Don't poke. No looking around. Just I'll look up here at the sky, okay? We all know a self-righteous person. Let's just for the purpose of this morning assume we all have a little bit of self-righteousness in us, okay? Myself, all of us, we all have, we battle with this from time to time. Because I'm going to give you a cure for self-righteousness. It's very simple. Easy cure. The way to cure self-righteousness is to stop comparing yourself to the people around you. Okay? Katie was talking to me. Everybody loves Katie. You know our church. She's, I, think a, I think she's got like a doctorate in psychology or something like that. She was, she was telling me this stuff. And she said, you know how, this, how to explain this is when it comes to, there's a couple of theories that we, we, we fall into. One of two buckets of theories we fall into. One of them is called the mirror theory. The other is called the model theory. Okay, And the mirror theory says we as individuals tend to look in the mirror and we compare ourselves to the people around us. And we, we, our actions, we judge the benefit of our actions, the good and bad of the actions based on how we compare ourselves to the people around us. You know, and we say, hey, look, I'm not as bad as they are over there. I go to church three or four times a year. You know, I, I give every once in a while. I don't hurt anybody. I don't steal. I'm better than they are. So I'm looking in the mirror and I feel pretty good about myself. All right. Well, the model theory says different, that we as an individual choose a model and we pattern our behaviors and we compare ourselves to that model and we judge whether or not we're being good or bad based on a comparison to that model. Here's the secret. If you've professed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you, you profess to be a Christian, you should be a subscriber to the model theory. And we compare ourselves to the model. See, if you're being self-righteous, it makes you the judge. If you're being righteous, it makes you humble before the judge, okay? And it gives us an opportunity if we quit comparing ourselves to the people around us and start comparing ourselves to the true model, the true perfect one, then we can see how we should subscribe to live and how we should live on day in and day out. The problem with that is we will always fall short. And so it can cause us, if we're not careful, to say, you know what? This righteous thing, I've heard it's kind of bad. It's not bad. I'm not saying this is a bad, I'm not saying biblical righteousness is a good thing. And then it can say, well, I can never live up to that. I can never achieve that. Well, let's go to Romans 3, and it kind of confirms that a little bit. Unfortunately, it says in Romans 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. But the context of that verse is compared to the laws of the land. According to the laws of the land, there is no one righteous, not even one. Let's go on down to verse 21. And it says, Now apart from the law of righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So according to the law of the land, according to that comparison to your model, you cannot be righteousness, but through your faith in Jesus Christ, you are once again made righteous. It's very critical we understand that. And I, and I want to kind of put this in perspective. I want you to just think for a minute. When I ask you to think about somebody that looks righteous to you, when you think about a righteous person, what comes to mind? Who comes to mind? Is it a parent or a grandparent that lived in your life? A coach? A mentor? Uh, you know, back in the day, we used to say politicians had some righteousness about them. You know? Some people put the Pope up on a very high regard when it comes to righteousness. What comes to mind when I ask you to think about what a righteous person looks like in your life? Does it look like some of these people? We can put some folks up here. 
Absolutely. They're wonderful, right? We love our church staff. They've accepted a noble calling. Does the fact that they've accepted that noble calling make them automatically righteous? How about this guy? (laughs) Do you consider him to be righteous, our fearless leader, our fearless pastor? I mean, look at that. That's righteousness personified right there, okay? Is it because he's accepted a noble calling? Do we automatically put him on a pedestal and say, you know what, that's a righteous person? Could be, but let me show you what a righteous person really looks like. Look around the room. Look at your family, your spouse, your loved ones. You are all created and designed to be righteous. And through your faith in Jesus Christ, you are righteous. We have to start believing that about ourselves. In order for for us to live in the way that we're called to live, we have to believe that we are created to be righteous. And through our faith, we are made whole. We have to believe it, okay? Because that's the only way we're going to get started on a true life of righteousness. So first we have to believe it. Now what does it mean when we have to live it? Okay, and, we, and so what I'm saying is in order to live this life of, of righteousness, you have to first believe it, then you claim it, and then you live it. It's just those three simple steps. So we talked about believing it, you have to believe it. Let's claim it now. Let's talk about what it means uh, to claim it. You have to claim the fact that you need Jesus Christ in your life in order to overcome some of the sins, the trials, the temptation, and the tribulation. And the best way to explain this is let's go back to Job 1, verse 8. And this is a conversation between God and between Satan, where God has made the decision to allow Satan to put these trials and temptations and tribulations into Job's life. It says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. So Satan's starting to kind of challenge this. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds have spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then later on we read, where he allowed Satan to go in and inflict Job with all these painful sores. So why did God allow Satan to put these trials and temptations on Job? Because Job had claimed his righteousness. Job knew that his power in God was, would make him righteous. Think about it this way. God's decision had nothing to do with Job's strength or ability. It had everything to do with his confidence that Job would fully rely on God. So when we claim righteousness in our life, what it simply means is under any circumstance, under any trial, under anything, it's not our own strength that we depend on. It's not our own justification. It's that we fully depend on the power and the strength of Jesus Christ to get us through it. And we understand this is not necessarily a punishment. It could very well be that God's trying to teach us, trying to develop us, trying to help us learn what it's like to live a little closer to him. It had nothing to do with Job's strength. God knew that Job would fully rely on the power of God to get it through these trials and these tribulations. So first you have to believe it. Then you have to claim it and believe that you're going to rely on the power of Jesus Christ. Then you just simply have to live it. 
So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's go back to, uh, let's go to Job 31. And the entire chapter of Job 31 is Job trying to explain to his friends that are giving him this sort of unwise counsel what he's tried to do to be righteous. And it says in here, this is just an excerpt. If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared them as a father would, and from my birth I guided the widow, if I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or needy without garments, and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. Job's saying very clearly, he's not bragging. He's not bragging to his friends about everything he's done. Because he, if he was bragging, what would he be doing? He would be saying, you know, I did all these things and, and I should be treated better. You know, that's it. he would be judging himself. He's saying, I did this for God. I did this because God called me to do it. And if I did something God didn't want me to do, let God be the judge and take my arm. You know, I did it for fear of God. And what he's saying is, you don't have to, just because you're a Christian and just because you're living a righteous life, it doesn't ensure you an easy life. Things are going to be tough. God wants you to grow. He's going to give you these opportunities to grow. And so basically what Job was saying is, I refuse to let sin enter my life. I refuse to do it. I want to live in the manner that God's called me to live. So first we believe it, then we claim it, now we live it. What does that mean for you? Well, if we're being honest with ourselves this morning, if I'm being honest, there's a point in my spiritual walk where I have probably said more than once, you know what? Sin in my life is unavoidable. I know it's coming and I know it's going to happen. And I've also probably said a time or two, you know what, a life without sin for me, that's unimaginable. I can't imagine a life without sin. So to live a life of righteousness means we have to move on that spectrum. And we have to truly believe sin being unavoidable is no longer the issue. Now sin needs to become unacceptable. We've got to move on this spectrum and say it's no longer unavoidable. For me, it's unacceptable. That's what Job is saying right here. I did everything because sin, not to serve these people, not to help these people, that was unacceptable. That's not what God created me to do, and that's not what I was chosen to do. And not that he was perfect. Again, he just, when he stumbled and fell, he went back and he earnestly repent, repented of his sin. Same thing for you. I'm not here to say a life of perfection is possible. Be great. I hope and pray that it can be. It'll be a wonderful miracle. But when you stumble, when you fall, earnestly seek God's forgiveness and more importantly, fully rely on the power of Jesus Christ to repent and turn away from that sin going forward. That's how we live a life of righteousness. We believe that we're created righteous. We claim the fact that, that God is within us and we have his power. And then we just simply choose to live it by saying, sin is no longer unavoidable, it's now unacceptable. I will not tolerate it in my life and do our best with God's help and God's power to live a life accordingly. And it's a wonderful life of blessing, a wonderful life of blessing. I mean, you just think about the idea of what this looks like. Think about a life of righteousness, the joy, the pure joy that comes from giving generously. We've all expected, we've experienced it. We've been able to give, we've been able, and you get that feeling and just think about a life of righteousness where God calls you to give generously, the blessing that comes from that. The peace that comes from letting God have control. Jesus, take the wheel. There's a lot of peace that comes with that. 
the true freedom that comes from forgiving others. Lifting that bag, that baggage, that burden, giving it to God. There's freedom, true freedom in that. The empowerment that comes from knowing your spiritual gifts. You were created and designed. You were given spiritual gifts. And to answer that calling, you can change a world because God put that in you. And that's empowerment. I mean, that's strength. And then you have pure confidence knowing you're living within God's will. I mean, these are wonderful blessings that can happen here today. Not to mention, oh yeah, eternal life in heaven, right? As if that's not good enough. We've got eternal life. We have motivation to live here. We have all this joy and peace and empowerment that comes from it. But there's one more part of this that I'd like to share with you. And it takes us back into to James 5. In James 5 and verse 16, it says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We take that further and we look at 1 Peter and it says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Now I don't even, don't mis mistake me here, I don't stand up here and profess to know how God's going to answer prayer when he is, when he's not, all that other I'm not even making that claim, not even getting close to that. But I know what the Bible says right here. And it says, if I'm a person of righteousness and I'm doing my best to live a life of righteousness, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous person are attentive to his ears. So let me just get real for just one second. Get real. If you're praying for your children to be safe, to be protected, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. If you're praying for your family member to be healed, uh, to be cured from this addiction that they have, his ears are attentive to your prayer as a righteous person. If you're praying for our schools, for our church, for our staff, for our pastor, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. I don't know about you, but when I sit down and I make my pleas to God, when I pray to God the stuff that I earnestly believe that, that I want him to hear, I want those, power, those prayers to be as powerful and effective as possible. I want his ears to be as attentive as possible. If that's not motivation for me to live as much of a righteous life as I can, I don't know what is. I want him to hear my pleas. I want him to hear them and make them powerful and effective. Again, he'll do with them what he will. But the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. There's blessings. There's motivation. There's things in this lifetime that we get to see, witness, and accomplish because we're willing to believe we were created righteous. We claim it that we're going to live that way. We live it day in and day out. And we rely on the power of Jesus Christ. And it starts right here. It doesn't have to be anything big. Whatever step you want to take. But my urging for you this morning, my challenge for you this morning is take a step. It could be something simple. You could go out and sign up for one of our C3 Bible study groups. You could go out and, and participate in some service out there, you know, serve people like you've not done before. You could stop the social media battles of right and wrong. You could quit comparing yourself to others and start performing for an audience of one. We have to make a step. It's how we move on this path to righteousness. You were created that way. Claim it, believe it, and live it. Amen? Let me close this with a word of prayer.